Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? That's actually a very difficult question to answer today because I've been thinking I knew that question was going to be coming because it happens at the start of every episode. And the guest that we have on today is someone that when we first started the podcast, I think at the end of 2018, Mm. I said to you we had to get on the show. And I, I thought to myself at the time, like, was it the right time? Because I knew that she had been through this kind of huge, um, few years of very intense uh, scrutiny and public speaking and you know revolutionary kind of action in a way and I thought mm-hmm. to myself maybe it was better to wait until later and um, there was a number of times when I almost met her as well in real life and I kept thinking I would just wait until I met her and then I could say to her um, would you come on the show and make it more mm-hmm. like natural or something authentic and, yeah yeah, authentic. And we we have mutual friends, people like Nicholas Kirkwood, the shoe designer, and even a friend of mine in Margate here um, in Kent who, um, you know, mentioned Rose a number of times to me. So I knew eventually we our paths would cross. And in answer to your question about how I'm feeling, I'm feeling thankful for those who have gone before me, artists and musicians and poets and writers and actors who have sort of rewritten the way that we look at the world and who question society and help engender social change and bring about Mm -hmm. sort of lasting change and obviously through culture culture, yeah and obviously sadly because of human nature there's many great sides of human nature but there's also the kind of dark sides of human nature and I feel like it's an ongoing struggle and it will probably never end but the things that that can end is that you Um, can say no, you know, to injustice and to wrongdoings and to people who have done, you know, bad things to you. And whether that be assault or even just sexism or, um, you know, simply someone talking down to you or or treating you like Mm -hmm. you're insignificant or something. Those, you know, even those tiny remarks can have such a massive impact on people's self-confidence. And something Mm -hmm. that I have taken from our guest today, I'll quickly sum up, is that I feel emboldened by her kind of persistence and resilience and empathy and bravery which is also the title of her book brave um but i just feel like you know there is a world there is hope for a world um where it's a better place for um you know people to look after each other and kind of you know think about the greater good so i would like to welcome to talk art all the way from Mexico today, Rose McGowan. Oh, thank you for that lovely and thoughtful introduction. And uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. So you're in Mexico, Rose. I am in the jungle uh, in a place called Coba, uh, where they have so many pyramids that haven't even been um, discovered yet because you can see this kind of shape and outline underneath all the jungle leaves and, and vines but they haven't excavated it yet. Or not excavated it, just taken off the topiary, really, or whatever it is, uh, what you wow. would call it. And um, but, So Wi-Fi is a little tricky here. Because of the pyramids underneath all the, all the jungle. Yeah, the Mayans, uh, I haven't made a sacrifice lately, so I think my Wi-Fi is bad. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you get out of uh, America? Uh, did you, you obviously went there before the lockdown. 
Yes, I had been lucky enough. Um, I had been lucky enough to live in London uh, for about a year and a half, and then I had visa issues, so I had to kind of emergency-like move back to New York. But luckily, about six weeks ago, I was in Norway giving a speech, and then in London for eight days. And at that point, they'd only locked down northern Italy. And then while I was there, Florence got shut down, and then it was going more southern. So I just knew it was coming, and I had time to plan. And I thought New York is absolutely not. I don't really like it anyway. And um, I have always struggled with America. It's um, because I got sent there when I was ten. It's just not. It's so beautiful, but intellectually, it's it's extremely difficult to live there in a lot of ways, as you can see from the outside. And uh, I just thought I I don't want to be under Trump at this moment. I would rather take my risks in a jungle, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, than America because it seems safer here. And actually, that's interesting because I, I heard you recently describe America as a cult in itself. And I know that you grew up as a, a young child in, um, in Italy, I think, in, in, in a cult of a different kind mm-hmm. called Children of God. But can you talk a bit about why you see America as a cult now? Well, I saw America as a cult when I was 10, when I first went there. I got sent to like a school on a military base and the first day of class, they made me lead them in the Pledge of Allegiance, but I wasn't even really speaking English yet. And they, I heard the teachers say they were going to get the communists out of me. And to which I replied, Italians were fascistas, uh, not communists, stupid. And um, it was just on. It was on from the minute I got there, and it was relentless. And I noticed um, a lot of parallels to what they said. Oh, it was so bad how you grew up. It was so bad. I'm so... And this has continued to be a party line, especially in the corporate press of America. They always paint my life before America as this tragic circumstance. And yes, there were hardships. You know, growing up in what's known as a cult certainly has some strange goings on. But overall, there was art, there was education. Uh, It was just a lot smarter. It was multinational. It wasn't all white bread. And... um, so I found it hellish to go to America. Uh, the food in the 80s was not okay. And orange cheese, American cheese. And I, I say that in my book, Brave. I'm like, dear America, why is your cheese orange? I just feel like it just telegraphs so much about the place, right? And it's such a shame. But I do feel, you know, the first paper I did in America for school, I got an F on, which is a fail. And I thought that was good. So I took it home proudly. I was like, look, I got an F. And my mother uh, said that that is actually not good. But the question was something basically like what makes America great? Uh, Like, is America great and why, basically? Something like that. And I said, no, you're a Native American burial ground and you built your White House off the back of slaves. I think you can be better. And I maintain that. And I think I should have gotten an A because my answer is correct. (laughs) So I don't pull punches, in other words. (laughs) So yes, I tweeted the other day that America is the scariest cult I've ever been in. And that's true. And they act like, you know, because they tell you it's all the same structure. Don't leave here. We're number one. Our healthcare system is number one. Our education is number one. There's zero evidence or data to back this up. They tell people not to travel. They only show the news of what happens in America. And even that is just only talking about Trump's tweets. And the, the effect on the people, you know, years of cult-like brainwashing and implanting this fear of other and this fear of the outside is so enormous and such a disservice to its people that they most don't really realize because cults can be small and they can be big. They're meant, you can be in a cult in a relationship of two. You know, a family can be a cult. It's just yes, the same. If, yes. you, if you don't leave, if you leave here and something bad will happen to you. And it supports usually a power structure that doesn't support you. And I guess um, I've heard you speak before as well about Hollywood being a cult. But I started thinking also about other industries being cults. And if you think of like the art world, even, you know, there's elements of that, which, um, which definitely has kind of a cult and the kind of like the kind of myth making within it all and the kind of power structures within it all. And I started to realize just from your descriptions of things in Hollywood, like how how 
I've often run away from sides of the art world where it kind of grosses me out or or just the the superiority complexes certain people have or or the power games they're playing with money and all that kind of stuff it just terrifies me and it's like you know the minute you walk into a room you can sense that that vibe and um i heard you talk about that that the minute you would walk into a room you could sense danger and i I've, i was so fascinated by that because i've definitely experienced that myself and it's quite a powerful instinct to have it is and people don't you know from the outside world i i mean hollywood is a deep cult it's super don't ever tell anybody what happens here we literally if you're a celebrity you hire people to keep people away from you because they're terrifying and will kill you. Uh, that's the party line. And sometimes it's true, they do. Uh, you know, so there's, there's truth to that, but it's also exaggerated. And, and it's, it's, they keep secrets there like nobody's business. And there's no reason to. It's kind of like if everybody there just communally came forward and said what was really going on, it would solve the whole problem, but they can't because it's been bred on secrecy and handed down and fear-based thinking, you know? And it's really like I found fame. I consider myself now uh, a notable public figure and artist, but when I was tagged and painted with celebrity, uh, which I think is just a really, it's always used pejoratively and it's kind of dirty, especially actress. You know, right. it's very, um, she wore a short skirt, she deserved it, right? right, right, uh, right. It's just, it's really cult-like. And I have to say, Harvey Weinstein was their cult leader. Mm-hmm. It, as much as they hated him and despised him, he was their leader. He was their de facto leader. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that just, I just thought, why not show people you can cut off the head of power instead of biting at the ankles? Mm-hmm. But it took 22 years. Who's the leader now then? Who do you think? I don't really think they have one. Do you think someone steps into the place? Well, they kind of deify Quentin Tarantino, but he doesn't have so much the personality of a cult leader because, uh, I mean, he does in his own, I think, world, but um, because he talks and nobody else gets to. Uh, <laughs> but it was funny. I, used, I did a movie with him a long time ago, and the press was like, every question was, what was it like to work with Quentin? And I would just say it's exactly like what you would imagine. Rob touched on then, so <clears throat> the art world is an, a new uh, arena for you. 2018, you, you, I guess, came out as an artist. What, is that, what has that been like and that transition from actor to artist? How has that been and does it feel like coming out? It, yeah, it, I had to be an artist. Well, first of all, I had no idea that I was an artist. I, because for me, I was discovered as an actress, so it was always just my weird day job. But I would always do things behind the scenes, like write songs or do a lot of photography. And on sets, I it took me a long time to realize that I loved the totality of filmmaking, but not being a cog in the wheel. And um, once I realized, and someone said, oh, you're an artist, it actually, it was so kind of pathetic and sad that somebody actually had to say that to me. You just mm-hmm. view yourself as a commodity, right? At least that's how I saw myself, at least for my job. But I couldn't come out with, say, an album like I'm coming out with on the 24th of this month, thank you. Uh, I couldn't come out with a book, I couldn't come out with things because people, you know, like Lindsay Lohan at the time were doing albums. And if I had an album come out, no matter how good it was, it would be derided and put down and shamed. And I just thought my art is too important to me, so I'll just wait. And so I did. And one of the things I did concurrent with writing Brave was produce an album and make, I, I essentially directed this whole experience and it's called Planet Nine. And um, I decided just to bump up the release and put it out while we're all in quarantine because it's really healing music. Um, it's very artistic. And, you know, there's one song on there that's, um, it's not a song, it's actually spoken word at this point uh, in this one track, but it's over this really operatic space beat that grows and grows. And I hope to play it with an orchestra someday with real violins and strings. Wow. It would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But I, the, the title is called Lonely House, and that was all about the L.A. cult, the Hollywood cult, because I lived in a house on a hill. Nobody was allowed to come near me. I had to pay to people to have people stay away or protect me from people that, you know kind of phantoms and imaginary in a lot of ways. Um, Mm. And also the people in Hollywood were terrifying to me uh, and dangerous. You know, when you're young, you are. You are the weak gazelle in the herd that the lion will go for every time. 
And you would just mm-hmm. go to any place and they'd make a beeline for you, numerous people. So I just hid in my house and, and uh, during the three years it took me to write Brave, I made what I think is a pretty incredible piece of work, but I also shot all the visuals for it myself because it was time really just to have, other than my movie Dawn, which I directed, which was incredible, as an experience, um, this I really needed like every level of it to just be me uh, for the first time because I'd always been a part of other people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as a performance video artist? Is that how you define your art and photographer? Is that all, all three of them elements play into your uh, language? I think it's like multimedia artist, I guess you would say. There's not really a word for what I do either. Like, you could call it activism. I don't know about that. Um, I think it's unwise. I used to watch my father, you know, as the leader in Italy. I used to watch him wire people's minds. He was really good at it. And I, I think with my book, and I'm quite good at unwiring. After that, it's up to you to fix yourself, but I can get you 10% in the right direction towards freedom of thought. I mean, there's not really a good word for people that are polymaths, you know, mm-hmm. especially no, because true. if you say the word polymath, a lot of people don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> especially in America. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you mentioned the word healing, and I was, I was thinking a lot about that because I heard that when you were a kid, you used to have to um, sing and, and that you would often use your eyes to communicate the kind of um, facts that you weren't that happy about what you were doing. And there's a memory that comes to me, which is obviously a very iconic moment in your history. In a, it's a tiny moment in a way, because it's not actually part of your work as such. But it, it really stuck in my head, because um, I was a Marilyn Manson kind of, not like a super fan, but I, I, I liked what he did, because I thought at the time he was sort of analysing society in a, in a very intelligent kind of way through his work. Mm-hmm. And I loved what you were doing with like Jawbreaker and Scream and the strength that you had. But I always distinctly remember that MTV um, award ceremony where you walked onto the red carpet in a very punky kind of like you, you showed a lot of your body and it was this very strong um, kind of cool aesthetic. But I always remember your stare and the way that you would look at the cameras. And it was almost like you were trying to tell us something back then that we had no idea about you know but I I felt it from you even at the age of 17 that I was at the time but I distinctly remember that and can you talk a bit about that part of you and the way that you've kind of used all your creativity for healing and for communication communication and challenging you know it was kind of like the gladiator movie hadn't come out yet obviously it was like 10 years later but in I remember like what Russell Crowe, uh, his character says at the end, uh, you know, he yells at the crowd and he says, are you not entertained? And I felt that that was what I was doing. It was very much, is this what you want? Because let's distill it to the truth. This is what you want. So let's just do this. And a lot of women um, on the red carpet have kind of copied it, but I think where they get it wrong is that they sexualize it. And mine was never, uh, it was kind of done with a giant, you know, Marilyn Manson had a great quote that I always loved. I wasn't born with enough middle fingers. And so I think that's probably what I was trying (laughs) to communicate that day. And also it's just a great line. And it was true. And I did, even in Charmed, when I did this TV show later on, and it was very much like, for me, I felt really... uh, very trapped in that dialogue and show, and it was so different from my taste and personality. Um, I acquitted myself as well as I could, and I brought a lot of people joy, but I always, even through my characters in every movie I did, try to communicate with the audience. Like, I'm here, can you see me? Can you see me? I'm lost. Yeah. Wow. And I bought this piece of art by this artist named Eric Blum, um, and it was when I did Charm, and it was at the height of TV fame is kind of like freakish. It's unlike anything else. That is uh-huh. extreme, and you do need to hire people to keep people away from you because it's, it's weird. And I've, I've noticed, like, every couple of years, I buy a new piece of art of a woman, and, and, um, and I've realized they become kind of biographical. And the first piece I bought at the height of my fame, she was almost completely invisible. Oh, wow. And it, it just was how I felt. Like, nobody could see me. If everybody is reacting to you for something that doesn't even really exist, a character, you're not there. So you're working 17 hours a day or 12 hours a day to 17 hours a day being someone else. Mm-hmm. And then when you are free of it, 
everyone's treating you like you are that person. And you just, I just got so lost. So it took a long time to come out and kind of claim my art, you know? And a little Marilyn Manson tidbit for you. Coma White on the album Mechanical Animals is me. It was my life story. I lived in a place called Miracle Mile. I stood on an overpass. It's like, it's, it's me. Yeah, so there you go, that tidbit. And that was a great album, it holds up. Well, yeah, totally. And that, that actually was the album at the time that I was, I was most into. Yeah, me too. So I felt like at that time, I was getting to be an artist with him. The other ones I never really got into. They were too hard for me. So are you a collector then? Would you class yourself as an art collector? Yes, sadly, I, I would. Um, I have a great Claire Falkenstein piece that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, her work is around the door of the Peggy Guggenheim Palazzo in Venice. It's incredible, oh, cool. her art. Um, I have a Grant Hafner, whom I really like. He's kind of newer. And then I, I just got this piece that I really like. It's the guy who does the Radiohead album covers. He's a great artist and he works a lot. Um, and it's this figure of a man in a trench coat and hat. Stanley Donwood. Yes, thank you. And he's holding back the waves of the ocean. And I bought that kind of at the height of the Weinstein stuff. And it just radiated what it was. I was just holding back the thoughts of the world. Because when there's a lot of people globally concentrating on what you're doing or what you're saying, it's a very strange feeling. It's like a live wire. And you want to just push it out. How have you channeled your experiences into your uh, artistic practice? You know, Brave, my book, was very, um, I considered that an artistic practice. I had only written before that like a short joke article for a magazine. I had no clue what to do, how to write a book. I've always been a strong writer, but not with any discipline. And uh, I thought, oh dear, I have to climb Mount Everest now. And um, so I approached it how my father painted. I thought, well, I'll just paint with words. And then I approached my album the same way, Planet Nine, because I had never made an album before or created one and uh you know found um collaborators all that kind of stuff i just didn't really know that world because once you're in hollywood like that's another thing you don't get to know any other world it's not like you mingle people you know bankers or something like that you don't or artists that much you're just hollywood right so um but I did the same thing with words in my album and it's the album is kind of the reward for going through the book uh it's, um, it's extremely uplifting. I tested it on groups of people from triplets that were 10 to a group of people between 65 and 85 and, and all in between. And I used a movie mixer. Yeah, and the kids said the most amazing thing. The kids like killed me. Their dad said, how did that make you feel? And one of them said safe, one of them said free, and one of them said home. Wow. Love that. And to me, that's better than any review I could ever get. <laughs> yeah, damn right. So you just mentioned your your father's art. Yeah. Can you speak a bit about that? And did that have an influence on you as well? Yeah, looking? growing up with that. He had a wild imagination and his technical skill. I, I don't know if I've ever met anybody with technical skill. I'm sure there have been in history. I just didn't know them to match his, though. And it makes me kind of hard on a lot of artists because um, it's tricky, like, you know, modern art in a way. I feel like you kind of need to be able to do it classically before you can find another route because otherwise what are you responding to in a way? I don't know. But watching my father, um, and I believe his, his airbrush, you know, it's a compressor. It blows out the tiny particles of paint. And what he could achieve with that, he did um, like the original Kodak penguin art. He did a lot of commercial art too because he had eight kids, you know, cult leader, that kind of thing. And um, so he did the bocce, the candy, he did the, you know, the box for that. He did originally, um, he just did art that I saw everywhere, but also his personal art was pretty wild, like a banana microphone in the sky at night with stars all over it. And it's it almost like he would go between like this kind of futuristic 1930s, but also 2030 kind of style, but with, with great technical skill. And then he died 10 years ago. And I believe it was his airbrush uh, particles that killed him because it was a lung disease that was not, it was environmental. It wasn't uh, lung cancer. 
And, you know, so people, I'm kind of glad that people don't really do airbrush anymore, other than the fact that it's a beautiful art, but it's kind of lost with computers now. But once computers came along and, and uh, digital art, it just kind of killed him. He went to paint oil paintings then just for himself. Do you have artistic heroes? Like, are there any artists who have sort of given you strength? Absolutely. When I directed my movie Dawn, uh, early Hopper works, Edward Hopper, were my biggest inspiration because the character needed to have an immense loneliness and have a real loneliness to her life. And so I shared a lot of early Hopper with um, with uh, the lead actress, and it, she really nailed it. You know, and I, I took my style of editing from how Hemingway self-edited his books, tight and unsparing, um, and I you know, the color palette was just from my head. But it was in art, you know, I think, I just saw a great exhibit, the Manil Museum in Easter. And they have that incredible all-black Rothko chapel. And I finally went in, yes. and there's nothing in there, it's just all black. And I just thought, this is actually what it is. This is what it should be, stripped of everything, just the house of worship with no idols and no gold. Yeah, that's an incredibly powerful work. But I love, they had a great show also. It was, it was Latter-day Magritte, and that was beautiful. I love um, Camille Claudel's sculpture and Rodin too, even though you know, he certainly benefited from his association with Claudel. Uh, I love sculptors. I love, um, I don't know, I love actually mechanical design, mechanical engineering. I like factories and seeing how they... I just think art can be anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And actually, talking about mechanical and factories, um, I loved the video that you made with Nicholas Kirkwood in 2018 called Hacker, which was part of his live show. Yeah, he did such a great job. I think you did a great job as well. I mean, I, I thought you were just incredible in that. And, and can you talk a bit about that whole collaboration and how that happened? Because that had a kind of mechanical vibe to it, actually. It definitely did, you know. And all of that came, this, this great kind of post like just like how do you sell shoes but make it really creative and it's not about sales of him it's really about i mean obviously it is with his company but what he did there for a shoe designer to have that kind of level of an art an immersive art experience in a way was truly incredible and and it was 2018 so it was still kind of at the height of all the um weinstein i'll use a yiddish word mishigas sounds like what it is uh, and it was a respite from that. Art has always been at Nicholas, and he's just so lovely, and he's a true artist, you know, and he did it. But it was, there's a point where I, I hold the shoe up, like the fist of power, but it's the shoe. I like that. Can part. we talk about your time uh, involved with the Venice Biennale in 2019, where there was a, a video work of yours that was shown in a, a feminist group show there? Yeah, that was an amazing show. It was it was pretty amazing. It's the first performance art piece, you know, or labeled as such that I had done. And it was the day uh, I filmed that. And I had just, it was, it was called Indecision, which the title doesn't really, it was named before I joined. And I, I don't know if that title really makes sense, but it's not my, I didn't direct it, so I can't do that. Um, but it was, I came into this amazing church chapel uh, where we filmed in in London, and 
I had so much pain in my life at that point. And it was the day that Harvey Weinstein got arrested that I filmed. Oh, wow. And you could see, like, the stress, you know, on my face. My face just looks exhausted. And my back, like, I had this giant... I had so many muscle spasms of stress on my back. It was actually like a raised hump almost. You could see it. It was wild. Um, so to do that piece where I interacted with this dancer, but we didn't meet beforehand. And it was really a push-pull of masculine feminine, but he was a ballet dancer. So what is masculinity and who, who wins? And it was completely silent, except for he had uh, sandpaper on the bottom of his slippers and... We, it was, the whole place was wired for, for, you know, minute detail sound. And it was, it was just, I got to work out a lot. And then it goes to the Venice Biennale and has a group show there. And it's, it was, uh, it was not in the Biennale. It was, um, you know, at the Biennale, I should say. But it was an incredible experience. And the other artists in it, it was a lot of Muslim artists and Indian artists, women, and it was so good. And I was really proud of that. And that really, you know, London has been incredibly welcoming to me, especially the art scene there. Just to add that that ballet dancer was James Mulford. Yes, he was great. How much does um, architecture and design play into your works? I've read you're a big fan uh, to the point where you've actually broke into a, a design house in Los Angeles. Yes, I did. I, uh, <laughs> it was called the Ennis House, E-N-N-I-S, and it's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, who's a, you know, kind of the penultimate American architect through history, really. And um, I was walking my dogs, and I just had always, I tied them to a tree, I climbed up the tree, I climbed horizontally across a big branch, threw myself on top of the wall, and crawled through a kitchen window, and Below me, I could see the guard walking around the property. So I snuck into the kitchen and then to the dining room because I'd always wanted to see his furniture. Frank Lloyd Wright was an incredible furniture designer as well. And um, then two nights later, I was in Brazil and talking to a man, and he told me he was the real estate agent. He was the estate agent for the Ennis house in Los Angeles, and if I wanted to come see it, I could come anytime. And I just thought, oh dear, I already have. <laughs> I committed a crime, but I could have gotten it legally. But I like the crime better. Yes. But you like architecture yes. then, and architects, and you've referenced Zaha Hadid before. and I do. I think it all influences work, right? I mean, I did the set design for my film, Dawn, um, it's a short film. It was nominated for a Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, but probably, and directing it was incredible. But what I also loved doing was the set design. And I tested a production designer that I hired. We went to, um, you know, a prop house with furniture from all ages. And the movie, the only thing that gives you the exact date of the film, because it's set in 1961, was the original Eames chair I had. And uh, it's in orange, and it figures heavily in the movie. Um, it's, her, it's the girl's chair. And that, that model came out that year. So a lot of people say, oh, the movie's in the 1950s, but they just don't know furniture. And I made, I wanted to say about something about class difference, and I wanted to just do that through furniture. Like the girl who's upper class really likes this boy who's a gas station attendant. And you can say so much without having to say it, simply by the boy coming to this beautiful perfect mint 1961 house um he's sitting stiffly on the couch which is all also being from the 60s stiff and uncomfortable but it shows that he's not comfortable in this environment and you can say so much with furniture and so much with set design and for me architecture i like everything to kind of have um i like the 30s and the 70s a lot. I love 70s Italian and 70s French design. It's, it's really incredible. It's kind of like Art Deco, but without all the stuff. And so I tend to find things and gravitate towards um, pieces from that era. That's so cool. You know, I was just thinking a lot about what you said earlier when you were talking about the artworks that you've bought over the years and how they almost become part of your, doc, your, um, your autobiography and kind of reflections of yourself. Um, which is definitely true of collecting. Can you talk a bit about some of the artworks that you have? So you had that first invisible woman who, you know, was you at that time. And w what's another work you live with? Well, I just got another piece from an unknown artist, and it's the wo a woman 
but her eyes are enormous, but more like I've seen things you people can't imagine, uh, kind of like that. Like, and that kind of felt like I bought that. I, I got it while the Weinstein trial was going on. And <laughs> it just kind of looks like how I felt, basically. Like, oh, my God, this is surreal and bizarre and quite horrible, but also beautiful in the end. Wow. Where, where did you find her work? Oh, at a garage sale. I, I will go for, like, fancy so cool. artists and also if I see something. When I was 14, I bought a fake Magritte at a garage sale, and I thought it was real, so I kept it for, like, 10 I years thinking, this is my insurance in case I go broke. Of course, you know, it was worth $5. That's so sweet, though. What, what, what Magritte was it? It was... Uh, what, which one was it? It was just the clouds and... But I think it was a later work of his. Have you ever seen his later work? A lot of artists get kind of discounted as they get older, and I always find that period quite fascinating because they're wrestling with so much. Touching on, like, violence against women and abuse of women, there's an incredible uh, performance piece which you've been quoted as saying is a massive influence to you by the artist Yoko Ono called Cut Piece. Can you talk about that a bit? Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I wasn't yeah. fully aware of this piece, and I've, I've done the research on it, and it's just... Uh, astonishing. 1964, isn't it? Mm. It's astonishing and seminal. And you, you have to imagine, like, was she with Lennon at that point? I can't remember. I think it's before, because I think it's when she was in, I think it's when she was in Japan. I think it's after the Beatles, because it was like after the, she'd had all the attention on her for the people saying that she'd split the Beatles up and stuff. Yeah, but not just that. Can you imagine, first of all, you know, so later on, it's the Vietnam War, and everyone in America is like, you know, all keyed up to hate communists or, you know, Asian people at large. Uh, and she's with him. And he left a blonde woman for her. The amount of racism she must have dealt with. No, and, and even before that, just as a woman, cut piece, you know, where she's bound in fabric and invites the audience to come up and just cut the pieces off until she's naked. That's what being famous feels like to me because I didn't want it. Now, I don't know if that's what it feels like for people that do want it. Because I was discovered, I don't think I have that same kind of brain. Um, but it, it's, it's, to me, it's also a metaphor for, in art, for just bleeding, you know, bleed for it and, uh, and put it all out yeah, there. It's, an, it's, an, it's a really kind of shocking at times film because she's allowing these as you said members of the public to come up and they take big sheared scissors and they cut sections off they're allowed to cut off whatever they want and then at one point there's this man comes up and he cuts off the area of fabric covering her one of her breasts and there is like another man filming it who's kind of laughing or you can hear maybe it's not the person filming it but you can hear someone behind the camera laughing at his choice of positioning and it's just like completely mm. highlights what she's What's done to women? Yes. It's so easily, like, so brazenly in front of everyone. And sh yeah. It's, it's a really staggering piece. And it's such a pity because Yoko Ono gets written off as the wacky lady that broke up the Beatles. I'm like, no, she was a seminal artist before she met John Lennon and has continued to be a seminal artist. And the, the first ever performance of Cut Piece was 1964 in Kyoto, and it was two years before she met John. Oh, it was, and then okay, she redid cool. it. sorry about yeah. that. And then she redid it later. But, but the thing that's so fascinating about that work is that it's kind of, it's even just before the kind of massive feminist art movement and feminist social movement as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got this kind of proto-feminist work. And, and I just think the, the bravery and strength that she had, but also just this, this knowledge again. It's a bit like I was talking about you, you and even Manson, like earlier on, the way that both of you could see this kind of, the, the, the structure, the cult, the kind of the way things are built and constructed um, in order to repress certain people. And that's what I think she also shares, that kind of vision and clarity of thought. Very much so, because you can, you can take it as a proto-feminist piece, which it certainly qualifies as, but you can also take it from a human level. Like, what if she was a man doing that? Would that not feel like what the world does to you? Earn, earn, earn. Here you, here's what you are as a man. Let us take yeah. this away from you, snip by snip, who you are as a human. Then we tell you you're a man. And then we come up with shears and cut you, little by little. Isn't that what society does to humans yeah, when they turn them exactly. into a gender and a race? Telling them what they are and how they need to be. And I think it's really important to, like, cut yourself 
cut the fabric off yourself and be free. You know, it also makes me think about another um, a later artist, Suzanne Lacey, who made work about a series of rapes that were happening in Los Angeles. And her work as well. I mean, it's just so important. Let's talk about happier things. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about Zaha that. Hadid. You went, to, <laughs> you went to a building in South Korea of hers that really inspired you. I did. It was all curves. And it was just, I, I, uh, it's the big one right in Seoul, you know, and it's huge. And it was just, and she'd already died, of course, like, you know, a year or so before. And I think that's just such a huge loss. I mean, if you imagine what she had to go through to get her as a woman, as a, you know, woman of color and, and just to get her own designs out there, like, she's pretty badass. She is badass. Yeah, she's awesome. So sad she's no longer with us. I always wanted to talk to her. Who is there then, historically, who, if still around, you'd love to just go for a coffee with, like, in the art world and the design world? Oh, Okay. Usually, honestly, um, more like warrior figures like Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan, and uh, Alexander the Great. Um, I would love to have, you know, the 20s in Paris. That would be a great art community to be a part of. Um, There's so many periods, you know. I would like to have talked to Rothko. I'm very curious about his mind. There's just so many minds that you can delve in. You know, I like de Kooning, Kandinsky would have been very interesting to talk to. Um, and I wish I knew more female artists to cite them through history. I get asked all the time, who are your celebrity crushes? I'm like, dead people. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about a Renaissance artist and she's the one sort of main female Renaissance artist. Artemisia. Exactly. Artemisia Gentileschi. And the National Gallery have a painting by her. And I really wanted to talk to you about her because, I mean, the painting of St. Catherine of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria with the spiked wheel. And, you know, she herself had been raped and then even tortured in court to, like, prove that her evidence was real. So they would use this kind of, like, spiked wheel or something. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Also, what they did was they actually put, um, like, cords or tw- around her finger and rope, little yes. rope. And they, they, they pulled on each of, as an artist, you can imagine as a painter, they pulled on each of her fingers to prove that she was telling the truth. And that was like one of the first rape cases, I think, like really recorded. Not rape happening, but rape trial. And it would have been like the yeah, O.J. Yeah. Simpson trial or, you know, the like super news everywhere, you know, at least in that area. And she did a, a, a painting called um, Judas Slaying Holofernes, Holofernes. Yes. And um, yes. I don't know how to pronounce that. And someone actually sent it to me and it kind of gutted me. It was a little crazy, but it was my face sawing off Harvey Weinstein's head. And I'm like, oh, dear. Um, but it certainly drives the point home. And that was her rapist who she made the face of, you know, uh, who Judith oh is God. sawing off the head and, and, and what she went through. And she, I think she was like 16 when that happened, you know, um, and she was an incredible artist. And I'm so glad her work is being resurrected. And um, uh, the books on her are pretty great. And someone actually that I know is writing a screenplay. Explain to me this finger th- finger thing. How does a finger thing work? Well, it was like cords around her fingers and they, it was a torture thing. It was like an inquisition. And they, they pulled it tighter and tighter and tighter to cut through her fingers and to see how much pain she could take if she would still tell the same story. The thing that's so powerful as well about her paintings for, for, is, that, is that the history of art has so many representations of rape. If you think of like Titian, Poussin, Rembrandt, but they were all male kind of representations. And also it was kind of acceptable as some sort of part of life or something. It was just bizarre, you know, in those great paintings of history. And, and I think what's so powerful about Artemisia's work is that, you know, you, you suddenly, you're seeing it from the, from the different perspective and a, a different angle, which is obviously what's happening in the art world right now. You know, we're beginning to hear all different voices, which, you know, it's about time, you know. So, yeah, I'm really glad you knew about her because I, I had a feeling there would be a connection to you and her. Very much so. Very much so. I... I, I'm, I'm just, you know, and it, the thing is, when you cut other artists, people of color or women out of the equation, whether it's in film or whether it's in the art world or in the music world, it's such a loss for the public. It's such a loss for all of us culturally, because we could be having a more 
very, it'd be like us getting the same meal for centuries. It's yes. not negating that that meal is good. It just means you might want to eat some other things too. But that's the crazy thing. It's win-win, isn't it? I mean, everybody wins from inclusion mm. and from supporting each other. Yeah, everybody wins. We ask every guest that comes on two really important questions. The first one is, if you could do an imaginary art heist, Thomas Crown Affair style, you could steal any work of art in the world, have it all to yourself, what would that be and why? I think it might be Gentileski. If I had her skill and I could certainly communicate my passion and pain and life through her skill, that would be fantastic. The second question is, what is your favorite color? Fluorescent orange. Oh, wow. And why? Why? I don't know. Fluorescent and burnt orange. Those are both great. Like on the spectrum of orange. Orange is just one. It's a, and maybe this is why American cheese is orange. Um, it's a, the color that most psychologically grabs people. So I made the lettering on Brave. It, the font, um, it goes, uh, the type goes vertical. Uh, I chose the image for the hardcover. I only gave them two options, one for the back cover, a picture of my face, and then one of me shaving the back of my head. And you see hair. It's an art piece. It's an incredibly beautiful cover. I'm actually loving the idea of you being in the um, Mexican jungle right now. It's quite like warrior-like somehow. It's kind of with nature. I kind of, That's the most strong thing in the whole universe. So I kind of, I kind of love that. And also Frida Kahlo is obviously Mexican, so her spirit is with us. I just went to Frida's house. I went to Mexico City. Uh, yeah. Oh, she's actually a great one to quote and recommend. She, um, I went to the Blue House, her house, uh, about two months ago. Yes. I was in Mexico City. And it was my first time in Mexico City. I've been all over Mexico, but not there. They have over 160 museums in that city. It's yes. staggering the amount of culture and art they have and how they're represented. I don't know how they're represented, you know, Mexico as much in Europe, but how they're represented in the media, the corporate media in America is like all they show you is like migrants trying to cross the border and um, peak criminals and the destitute poverty of, of Mexico. But there's this other side that's just... They just, they're so deeply entrenched in art and it's so much a part of their culture and has been for century upon century. It's it's such a big and rich culture. And if you, you can't do it right now because Airbnb is shut down, but I tell friends who've never been there, I'm like, go on Airbnb, look up apartments in Mexico City and look at their style, their interior design. Their, you know, it's incredible. The taste level there is just off the chain. And the colors, you just, you're like, why don't we use these colors? Oh, incredible. We've got one more question for you. The last question is, um, have you discovered any hidden lockdown talents during this um, pandemic where we've all been forced to stay home? I've become really good at uh, standing up, sitting down, texting, laying down, texting, standing up, watching something, laying down. People are like, what did you do today? I'm like, I stood up, I sat down, I walked in a circle, I texted. I talked on House Party. I did the, you know, I don't know. I had to write a press release for Planet Nine because I didn't want a press person doing it because it would never be able to really explain it. And I also don't like things that look like standard press missives. They're really boring. Mm -hmm. um, so I discovered a hidden talent for being able to write a press release, I suppose and just really solidify that I really only want to speak for myself. There was one funny thing that I saw you do during this lockdown, which was an Instagram live chat with a dear friend of yours who was doing his makeup, and I love him, and I loved the whole chat. Um, you were both doing your makeup. Oh, yeah, that was my friend CT. Yeah, he does drag and an incredible you know, makeup artist and performer, and he's in New York, and um, yeah, he just decided to get friends to do their makeup together. I probably should have talked about makeup more, but it takes me all of seven minutes to do makeup, unlike him. But I was really mad at myself for the first two weeks of lockdown for not doing anything creative, for not writing, and I had all this pressure, and I'm like, hold on a second. Like, this is a global thing. The weight of it is staggering. When you see, I've only, I haven't seen them you know, in the UK, but I'm sure they have it there. But the amount, there's like two kilometers long of cars waiting for free food in America at different places. I mean, this is, and this is only two weeks in. 
it's just, and so when I sit in kind of, you know, that stupid thing that was like, if you don't come out of this with something amazing, and it was, of course, some basic rich white guy that said it, uh, if you don't come out of this quarantine, you know, well, Shakespeare wrote blah, 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 you know. Yeah, but it's also an emotionally weird time, and we have to give people latitude and space. It's getting easier now because settling into it, but for the first couple of weeks, uh, it was just... And, and sometimes you can tap into this collective feeling of pain and what people are going through, and it's a lot. It's a lot. And I have to admit, I am in somewhat of a bubble here, but uh, my rent is a third of my rent in New York. My lease was up. I don't want to live in America. Um, I'd rather be with trees. Well, that sounds like a very wise decision. I also liked the fact that you have your uh, peroxide blonde Madonna-inspired haircut at the moment, which I took a lot of strength from. Reminds me of like Papa Don't Preach. It was. Papa Don't Preach was my inspo. But right now it's actually kind of slicked back, more Sharon Stone basic instinct. It's also called quarantine haircut. Uh, I don't know what to do, <laughs> so I'll just push it back because it's going to get... We're all going to come out of this like with half a hair color. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Seriously? Yeah. My beard is so long at the moment, it's crazy. I know. I think hairdressers will no longer be called uh, non-essential after this. <laughs> no, exactly, fact. yes. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on, Rose. It's been amazing to talk to you. You guys were awesome. Yes, oh, you were awesome. And hopefully we'll get to hang out when you're back in the UK. Absolutely. Make are it you on Instagram, Rose? Uh, our Instagram's at Talk Up for everyone listening, but are you on Instagram? Yeah, it's just Rose McGowan, A-N-M-C-G-O-W-A-N, Rose, first name. Same on Twitter, same on Facebook. Awesome. So you can follow Rose, and we will post images of all the artworks we've discussed in today's episode, and we'll be back very soon. Thank you, Rose. Thanks, Rose. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.